I'm just starting my time now. This is the official time, so none of the rest of it counts against me. Uh, all right, Philippians chapter three, the first eleven verses. I'm going to read those. Actually, I think we have the theme of the. Yes, let me start with this. The, so, Pastor Mark gave us this theme a couple months ago as we launched into our Philippian study, and that is this: the theme of the book. Our life is fulfilling when we joyfully surrender to the will and work of the Lord Jesus as He has ordered it for our good and for His glory. You are going to see that theme again this, uh, this week in this text. How do we find rejoicing and joy? And that's exactly how verse 1 begins. Let me read it for us. Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes apart from the law, sorry, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, coming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this beautiful, beautiful passage. And thank You for the life of Paul. Thank You for what You demonstrated in the changed life of Saul of Tarsus to the humble servant the Apostle Paul. Father, I pray this morning that the Gospel would be on display. That as we look at the Gospel, this amazing diamond that we as the church hold out to the world, that we would be in awe of it yet again. And God, I pray that we would never tire of hearing about it. It is an incredible thing. Not one of us has merit on our own to stand. And yet we all stand blameless in the eyes of our Father because of what You, Father, have ordained, what Your Son purchased, and what Your Spirit has brought us through faith. I just pray that we as a church would love it more after this text. I pray for anybody in the hearing of these words who is trusting in their own righteousness that today they would realize that is a bankrupt option. The only hope we have is a righteousness that we had nothing to do with that is given to us in Jesus Christ your Son, our Lord. So we ask, Father, exalt Yourself. Exalt Your Son. Would Your Spirit, would He move? Would He show Himself through Your Word? We ask all these things to You. 
Amen. Well, from the very inception of America, uh, Americans have placed uh, political leaders uh, who own their own way in life uh, as virtuous. The story of Alexander Hamilton recently has become a pretty popular one in America because of the uh, Broadway uh, musical called Hamilton. And Alexander Hamilton was uh, an exemplar, if you will, of political leaders. He was born in the Caribbean. He was born out of wedlock. He was raised by a single mother. Um, And that's hard in any age, but especially in the mid-18th century, and yet rose to become the first Treasury, uh, Secretary of Treasury of the United States. Further, somehow in the midst of that, he also suffered the devastating blow of having his mother die before he reached being a teenager. And this orphan was able to get a solid education, become the assistant to George, General George Washington, and also go on and be a framer of the Constitution. In fact, many wonder if Hamilton did not have decades left of, of uh, distinguishable service had it not been for his early death after a shootout with our third vice president, Aaron Burr. Um, and if nothing else, that's just cool to talk about. Um, so if you think politics is nasty now, that's not new to America. That's right. Remember, our third vice president shot the secretary of state and continued in office. I mean, you know, it's not an impeachable offense. But anyway, um, so anyway, in many countries, uh, in many countries, uh, not having a pedigree of name and fortune, that counts against you in major ways. In fact, not so, though, in America. Because in America, it's quite the opposite. Your pedigree of name and fortune can actually count against you, and you see this in, pol- in politics, as over and over politicians do everything they can to show you their average roots. It feels to me like every politician tells us about how his or her Grandfather legally immigrated into the country, worked eight jobs outside of being a peanut farmer while learning two languages and raising 15 children who all got JDs and MD degrees or something like that, right? Every one of them, it feels the same. But in all seriousness, we like to see a person who has earned his lot in life, not one who's just merely been given it. And I think that is a good thing for America. I think it's a good thing for our political leaders. It is not a virtue though that we want to see esteemed in our Christian life. Why? Because our story could not be more opposite. In fact, if you were to take the average Christian testimony and make it a political speech, I think it would start like this. My name is Tim. I did not earn a thing for which I am being credited here. Everything good for which I am credited, that was given to me. All the stuff that I earned on my own is heavily inadequate. Now listen, don't think I'm being humble. Because I haven't understated the case. If anything, I've overstated the case and probably taken on too much credit. If that doesn't make sense to you, as the average right Christian testimony, I pray that by the end of our time in this passage, it will. We have a salvation that is unearned and that is completely given. A salvation unearned and completely given. Paul begins this way in chapter 3. There are four chapters to Philippians. Chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, My brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Now the word finally uh, indicates that he's beginning to wrap up. Now that's odd because he's only halfway through, right? So it's also odd because he does finally again in chapter 4. You'll remember somewhere around verse 8 of chapter 4, we get this part, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is... So we get two finallys. He breaks the rule of preaching professors, and I love it. 
Um, so you're never supposed to in your sermon say finally until you're ready to close. So in closing, folks. Uh, <laughs> so why does he do this? I think it's actually helpful. I think it helps us see that this section is incre- it's a parenthetical aside that is incredibly important to the argument of the rest of the book. And in it, what does he do? Well, he gives a command. There's one major imperative in that verse, and that is the command to rejoice. He is saying, go be joyful. Now, that seems odd to us, to have somebody command us to be joyful. Oftentimes, we think that that we are unable to be joyful outside of whatever circumstances we've been given, we've been presented with. But Paul doesn't think that way. Writing from his jail cell, he's commanding the Philippians to also be joyful, as he already is. And he says, this is something I've repeated to you. He said in chapter 2, verse 18, it's something worth repeating. I'm going to repeat it again. But he doesn't just tell them to go be joyful. He says, go be joyful how? Go be joyful, rejoice how? In the Lord. This is the commandment of God to us this morning. Rejoice in the Lord. We are commanded to joy, regardless of our circumstances, because we have a common Lord. And Paul spends the rest of this section explaining that to us. So, uh, point of the passage, at least the first part of the passage, is that we are to live glad in the Lord Jesus. We are to live glad in the Lord Jesus. Now look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, this is just not what you see coming after verse 1, right? It seems a little awkward. Now, you all be joyful. And watch out for the dogs and those who mutilate their flesh. (laughs) What? That's odd. Well, the commands of this section are held in those first two verses. There's a command that we be joyful. That's in verse 1. And then there's a command to beware of those who want to rob you of your joy. Those are the folks in verse 2. These are the dogs. These are the evildoers. Or who are they? These are what we would call Judaizers. They're a group of false teachers that Paul has been arguing against for years. And they preach a false gospel. Recall, Paul is writing to a mostly Gentile. That is a non-Jewish audience there in Philippi. The Judaizers were a group of folks who believed, they said they believed that Jesus is the Messiah, but they also taught that in order for someone to be a genuine believer, he or she had to adhere to all the restrictions within the Mosaic Covenant. So they said, yeah, Jesus is Messiah, but you also have to keep these restrictions like circumcision and dress code, etc. So while they recognized Jesus... They said it is Jesus plus something that saves you. Paul does not like it one bit. And he says it will rob you of your joy, Christian. It will rob you of your joy. He minces no words in describing them. He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. Those who work iniquity. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. These are hand picked intentional insults. He is insulting them. Cute and cuddly would not be adjectives you would use to describe a dog in the first century were you to come upon them. More like vicious, vulgar, and diseased. And this is why Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs. So here, you've got a group of Jews who want to make the Gentiles look like Jews And those Jews call those Gentiles dogs. And what does Paul turn around and call those Jews? Dogs. It's an insult. He intentionally insults them. He says, you're the one acting like you're outside of the faith, not them. You're the dog. And he goes on. He says, 
They're evil doers. They are wicked. This is how the Old Testament refers to pagan cultures. So there in Deuteronomy chapter 9, which we took out for, was part of our responsive reading, remember he says, I'm going to give these uh, people to you. Why? Because they are wicked. That's why I'm running over them. Because they're wicked. That's the exact same language that Paul is saying. Those were those outside of the promise. He's calling these Judaizers outside the promise. And then he goes to this part about mutilators of the flesh. Now, mutilation of the flesh, it's not a new thing. It's been around since the, uh, since the dawn of time. It's a pagan practice. And it was explicitly forbidden, Leviticus 21 in particular, for the people of God. This is what pagans did to appease their God. So Paul is turning to these same folks and saying, you want to keep them from being pagan, all the while you are the pagan. And it's a cunning rebuke because what is it they're trying to get the non-Jews to do? Be circumcised. So he turns around and says, you want to make them mutilate the flesh. Let me tell you, you're the mutilators of the flesh. This is made to stir us, to startle us, to go, whoa! That's what we're supposed to do. Be joyful in the Lord. Now you watch out for those dogs. That's the tone Paul wants us to grab as we're walking into this. And he walks us into some beautiful gospel truth. For we are the circumcision who worship by the... This is verse 3. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus... And put no confidence in the flesh. Paul emphasizes that these false teachers were not part of the believers. These are unchristian folks, non believers. How does he say that? Because he says, we, excluding them, we, including you, you Philippians, you non Jews, you Gentiles, we are the circumcision. So now you've got a bunch of Gentiles who have never been circumcised. They are now being called the what? The circumcision. That is a huge point in verse 3. Make sure you see it. Paul is telling a bunch of uncircumcised people that they are the circumcision. So how is it that these uncircumcised folks can be called the circumcised? This gets to the heart of the entire passage. If you miss the question, you'll miss the entire passage. <clears throat> this passage is about this question. How can one be right with God? It is such, such an important question. Let me repeat it again. How can one be right with God? Much of the Bible is written to defend and answer this question, much of our culture couldn't care less. In fact, not only are many people in the wilder, wilder culture not asking the question, how can I be right with God? But actually quite the opposite. The question often asked by the wider culture is, how can God be right with me? How is it that God could be fashioned and customized to my liking in such a way that He seems acceptable to me? Please don't hear me wrong. I don't say that as a jab. I really don't. I, I think if you haven't had the privilege, and please get that this is a privilege, if you haven't had the privilege to be influenced by a biblical worldview, the idea, idea that you need to be right with God may seem to you as a foreign concept. It is reasonable to me, I guess is what I'm saying, that a person may honestly not understand that they need to be made right with God and generally don't believe they've ever wronged God. That's reasonable to me. I think it's becoming more the norm. In case this seems hard to understand, let me, let me offer an analogy. Uh, this is a made-up story, but I think, I think it's helpful. So imagine one morning I get a text from my mom that reads, 
package coming in mail today. Kids are going to love it. Then an hour or so later, the mail carrier comes and they drop off this huge box. The kids know to be looking for a package. They see a big box. They get all excited. They tear it open. And we find inside some slick remote control cars. Awesome. Kids loving it. Having a blast. Salem attaches her little stuffed kitty to it and is driving that thing down the driveway and slamming it in the mailbox. And Asher turns it into some souped up Paw Patrol thing and has it going down through the grass, traversing through the woods, tearing through it. We're having a blast. And then a neighbor that I barely know comes walking towards our property. And I can tell he's mad as a hornet. Come to find out, these radio-controlled cars were actually a package wrongly delivered to our house instead of his. Come to find out, he's an enthusiast. And these radio-controlled cars cost $5,000 each. Come to find out we failed to see the package also delivered by the mail carrier in our mailbox that mom sent of zoo books. All right, it's, not, it's, it's not a true story, but you can imagine. Why, why would my neighbor be so upset with me? Well, because I was misusing something that was rightfully his all the while treating it like it was rightfully mine. The Bible tells us That every single person, every creature, every thought is created by God. Every time we mistreat another person, we mistreat a creature made in the image of God. When we grumble and complain, we grumble against the circumstances and plans of God. Every sin comes down to us as creatures misusing something or someone created by God. And like me with my neighbor, many people don't realize they've actually spent a lifetime misusing someone else's stuff. This is why the first three, of the cha- first three chapters of the Bible are so important. Why? Because in Genesis 1 and 2, it demonstrates that everything belongs to God. This is His stuff. We are His stuff. Genesis 3, the fall represents how man, the crowning jewel of His stuff, of His creation, willfully misuses God's stuff, and that's called sin. And the rest of the Bible is a story of how that might be made right. And so the question remains... How can I be made right with God? Or, how do I repay a lifetime of misusing precious possessions belonging to the King of the universe? That's what every human being is going to have to answer. How is it that I could repay a whole lifetime of misusing precious possessions that belong to the King of the universe? Verse 3. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul is saying that Christians are counted right with God. That's what he means by saying we are the circumcision. I commend to you, by the way, Galatians 4 through... I mean, the whole book of Galatians Galatians on this is really helpful, but in particular, the latter part of chapter 4 all the way at the very beginning of of chapter 6, incredibly helpful on this point of how circumcision, how there is a new circumcision, or there is the same authentic circumcision, there's always been its faith. So how are we the circumcision? Well, follow the logic of verse 3. It's evidence in that we now worship God the Father... We have a right relationship. We can worship. How do we worship? Well, it says it there. By the Spirit. Well, how does all that happen? Because of the work of the Son. And that's why we are those who now glory in Christ. So we have a right standing with God because of Christ Jesus. Oftentimes, the best way to explain something is by explaining what it's not. And that's exactly what Paul does here. He actually says, instead, and starting, instead of starting with how you could rightly answer the question, how we can be made right with God, he said, let me tell you how not 
to answer the question. By putting confidence in the flesh. That's a bad way of thinking about it. That will help you lose your joy. So we continue there, the point of the passage. So we are supposed to live glad in the Lord Jesus by not resting in your own righteousness. You will not live glad in Jesus if you rest in your own righteousness. And Paul now argues for that. Verse 4-6, through six, Though I myself, I have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So formally, his argument is this. I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't put confidence in the flesh. Because if anybody can, I can. Now let me show you why I don't work here. If I don't work, nobody works. That's the formal logic of the argument. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And here he gives it. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews. As the law, Pharisee, as the zeal, persecutor of the church, as a righteousness under the law, blameless. He lays out seven ways that he has reason. If anybody does, seven ways he has reason to be confident in the flesh in making himself right with God. Reason number one. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That means from his very birth, he has followed the letter of the law. It required circumcision on day eight. Paul circumcised on day eight. It also means that he was brought up in a Jewish home. He's a good Jewish boy from a good Jewish home. Secondly, his people were the people of Israel. This means he was both Jewish by race and religion. Don't mix me up, says Paul, with some of those people who became Jew later. No, no, no. My family, I come from a family stock of Jew. Thirdly, not just Jew, because there's different types of Jew. I come from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, if that doesn't just settle your score, um, let me explain to you why it would. There's 12 tribes. Ten of the twelve, they defected against the lineage of David uh, after Solomon, when the kingdom split after Solomon. Ten of the twelve, two tribes stayed south. Judah and Benjamin. Aha! Now, of those two tribes, only one of those tribes had the honor of housing the capital, Jerusalem, which housed the temple. Which one do you think that was? You got it. Benjamin. I am the people of Israel. I am the tribe of Benjamin. So he's laid out three reasons why his birth is good enough. Now he's going to give us reasons why his behavior is good enough. It's as if he said, my nature did it. Now let me explain to you why my nurture is golden as well. Verse, uh, fourthly, Paul says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now look, he says, I know there's been a lot of folks influenced by the Romans. Shame, shame, shame. And the Greeks, shame, shame, shamer, right? These Hellenists, that's what we call those Jews, the ones who have been influenced by, they even speak Greek all the time. They don't even know Hebrew. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. My primary language, Hebrew. Aramaic, got it. Greek, I just speak it because people need to hear it. I am not tainted Jew. Not a bit. Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. The most legalistic. Of all the Jews were the Pharisees. He says, I wasn't just a Pharisee, but my daddy was a Pharisee and his daddy was a Pharisee. And when we did the Pharisee thing, we did the Pharisee thing. The entire deal, we followed it all. I was Pharisee of Pharisee. And in case you think I wasn't zealous, just kind of did it. Well, let me tell you, I was very zealous. He says, I went after the church. I was a persecutor of the church. These Judaizers. I would have called them sellouts. They actually acknowledged that Jesus Christ should be followed. I didn't acknowledge He should be followed. I did everything I could to kill those who tried to acknowledge that. I was zealous. And then lastly, He says, what about my behavior? Well, if you were to follow me around, if you were to hold me up against every letter of the law, you would come down with this. Blameless. 
blameless. Yet recall, his point is he finds no confidence in the flesh. Why? Because the accounting situation for Paul got turned upside down. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I suffer the loss of all things and I count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is one of the clearest teachings. This is sacred ground. This is one of the clearest teachings in all of Scripture on the incredibly important doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification is the process about how one can be declared right. There is only one way to answer that question. There's only one Christian way to answer that question. And that's how Paul does it here. One of my favorite accounting reports, I like reports, one of my favorite accounting reports is the profit and loss statement, the P&L. Why? Because it's pretty simple. It lets you know how much income you've gained over a time period and how much money expenses went out, what your total income was and what your total expenses were. And big picture, as a business, if on a regular basis you take in more money, more profit, then you spend more, lo- then, then you have more profit than loss, you're going to stay in business. That's simple. I like that. Well, that's exactly what Paul is up to here. If you like that type of accounting language, you're going to love the, what Paul's argument here. It's, an account, it's, it's intentional accounting language. Paul says that before he became to believe in Jesus of Nazareth, before the Damascus Road experience, he thought, he honestly thought, he had a large income of things from the flesh. If he were to stand before God and have to answer the question of what makes him right with God, he thought, according to his P&L, according to his profit and loss statement, he had a very large income that he could point to. But then he meets Christ and everything changes. It, it is not just that he had less income than he thought, Because that was definitely the case. It's actually, it had switched categories. Talking about a nightmare. What do you mean? His his income became loss. His profit actually switched categories to become loss. Where did I get that? Whatever gain I had, I now count. That's I counted. I count it as a what? As a loss. That is a nightmare. When what you thought was your gain, your income as a company is actually an expense. Horrible. It was a loss three times in these verses. He refers to his efforts of right standing as a loss. Then he goes into verse 8 and he actually says, if I counted it all up, say I summed it all up, I would look at it and I would say, rubbish. Now, rubbish is a really kind way to translate that word. The King James Version is a whole lot better. They're a lot closer, and it's still not strong enough. It calls it dung. I think the RSV calls it refuse. It isn't pulpit worthy to actually fully translate what it is. But Paul says, if I were to take all the stuff I thought was best about me, I look at it and I say excrement. It is sick. That's what Paul is saying here. That's his argument. He says, it looks silly to me now. It's as silly as a kid handing you a $20 play note and saying, I think that'll take care of my college. Funny kid, that won't even get you a parking ticket, right? No! It's a joke. Well, this doesn't sound like good news, especially if you're tracking. 
So, let me get this straight. The Bible says that we've all clearly offended God. We're playing with His stuff. It also states that every person's got to answer the question of how to be made right with God. And then Paul is supposed to be the one who's like the best at this. So you can imagine us all sitting in the waiting room. Paul walks into the accountant and he comes back out and he's horrified. What's wrong, Paul? My ledger's completely wrong. I thought I had a lot of stuff. And I owe a lot of stuff. So where's the hope for the rest of us, right? It's in the word gain. He not only found out that his losses were far worse than he ever thought, but little did he know his profit was way better than he could ever dream. So first he realized he was misreading the statement. He thought he had these large positive balances and found out they were actually larger negative balances. That's bad news. The second thing he finds out is that he has access, listen to this, he has access to somebody else's funds. And the funds in the other person's account are orders and orders of magnitude greater than his own. That's why he says, whatever gain I had, I count that loss. Whatever I thought was my profit, I count that loss for the sake of Christ. His account. That's what he's saying. For his account. Access to his account. Everything. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I count that all. You can have all that. Just let me have access to his funds. And I've suffered the loss of all things and I count that. That's just rubbish. That I can get at His funds. That I may gain Christ. This is another imperfect analogy. But let's take our friend, let's call him Franz. Franz the farmer. Very conscientious fellow Franz is. After years and years of hard work, Franz is finally ready to retire. And he heads to the bank. He's going to go get it all worked out. And Franz only has the bank account that his dad gave him years and years ago. He's never really touched it. He's always done everything via cash. He doesn't have any assets outside of that. But he's excited. Because for years, Franz has been getting these bank statements about this account. And it says that he has like $450,000. Franz, very simple guy, said this is going to be more than enough for me to survive. He's ready to go retire. Franz gets to the bank. He gets some dreadful news. Not only does he not have $450,000, but he actually owes that to his bank. His good papa, he didn't leave him a savings account. He left him a credit account with a huge balance. And all this time, he thought he was gaining interest. He's actually been getting late payments. Franz is about to walk out. He's utterly defeated. He has no idea what he's going to do. The banker realizes who he is. He explains to Franz that he actually has an Uncle Benny he may not know about, but Uncle Penny has left an inheritance for Franz and his two brothers. Uncle Benny has an account with a worth of over two, I mean, ten billion (laughs) dollars. Now how does Franz feel? Can you imagine how Franz is going to deal with it though? If he gets back to the community and his brothers, who also have similar accounts to their dad, are being counseled by their financial advisors that they should prepare all of their financial outlook based off of those accounts. Unaware of Uncle Benny. Why would he be upset? Because he realizes that's bogus. There's nothing there. And you have access to much greater funds. Now you get the anger of Paul writing to the Philippians. He is mad at the Judaizers trying to convince the Philippian Christians that they need to rely on their own efforts for right standing with God. 
The Philippians have access to the righteousness of Christ. To try and earn their own righteousness before God makes a mockery of Jesus. And now just zoom in with me at verse 9. I cannot overemphasize the importance of verse 9 to Christian theology. And be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. This is a thoroughly biblical idea. You saw it. That's why we started the responsive reading from Deuteronomy 9 and 10. What is it that that, uh, the people are saying in Deuteronomy 9 and 10? Or God is saying to the people? Three times He says... When you get into the land, don't say it's because of your righteousness you got in here. That's not why. Three times He has the people hear this. It's not because of your righteousness. It is not because of your righteousness. It is not because of your righteousness. This wasn't a new concept Paul dreamed up. This This is a thoroughly biblical concept. Fallen man cannot rely on his own righteousness. Like Franz, who found out that the $450,000 account was actually a $450,000 loss. So we must look at our own efforts and realize they are a loss at making me right with God. And then the second part of verse 9. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. But that which comes from faith with Christ. You and I have an uncle, Benny. This is the very important, very important doctrine of, in Christianity called the alien righteousness of Christ. This doesn't, believe, this doesn't mean that if we find out there's life on Mars that we believe they're all righteous. That's not it. By alien righteousness, we believe in a righteousness that is alien to us. That is, we believe in a righteousness Please, take note, just learn this. This is huge. It'll shake your world upside down. We believe in a righteousness that is outside of us. Martin Luther worked so stinking hard on this doctrine. It is, it is referred to in the uh, Lutheran theology by, by the Latin phrase extra nos, outside of us. It's a righteousness that isn't ours, that becomes ours. This is the gospel. A genuine Christian fully relates with Franz and Paul. Every believer comes to a point in his life when you realize the weight of what Jesus meant when He said, Sometimes we just run past this. I wanted to use this for reading as well, but I realized we only had so much worship guy this morning. And the Beatitudes, remember there at the there at the end, what does Jesus sum the whole thing up as? You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Every believer comes to a point when he or she looks that square in the eye and says, he's not using overspeech. He's being serious. Now swallow this with me. Jesus Christ tells you and I, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's not overspeech. That is horrible news. It is scary. 
It's the moment that Franz's banker looked at him and said, Buddy, that's not a checking account. That's not a savings account. It's the opposite way around. You got a huge debt on your hands. And every believer comes to a moment when they access the righteousness of Jesus Christ in the way that Franz found out about Uncle Benny's account. And it blows you away. It just pummels you. That's conversion. That's when the gospel lands and you realize this whole deal is so much harder than I ever thought. And the good news is so much better than I ever dreamed. I have access to a righteousness of my own. I'm convinced that so many people stall in the Christian life because they are aware of the dreadfulness of their own sin. We don't like to talk about expression of self as a steam generation. No, 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 no. I'm talking about when you're laying in bed at night and it's quiet and you realize I am one messed up person. What am I going to do? You realize you have a righteousness that is alien to you. You have one that is extra nose. It is outside of you. And Jesus Christ by faith, is united to you. And you're united to Him. And you are right with God. And you're left a humble, thankful people. That's what you're left with. You're humble. Because you realize, I'm a fool. I spent my entire life looking at a checking account statement thinking I had $450,000. I owed the bank $450,000. I'm a fool. And I'm so much richer than I ever thought. (laughs) You're humble and you're thankful. Our statement of faith actually captures this doctrine really well. Article 5 of our statement of faith reads like this. I think I have it up there. We believe the great gospel blessing which Christ secures to those who believe in Him is justification. Justification includes forgiveness of sin and the promise of eternal life. It's bestowed not as a result of any works of righteousness which we have done, but solely through faith in the Redeemer's blood. By virtue of which faith, His perfect righteousness is freely imputed to us. You could substitute there deposited into our accounts. And it brings us into a state of most blessed peace and favor with God and secures every other spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We'll move through this last part quick. I know I'm over on time. I apologize. Not so much that I would change it, but I apologize. Alright, that's called political apology. Um, Verses 10 and 11. This is the last part of that statement of faith, really. We end there and secures every other spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul, it's as if he can't say, now wait a second, it gets better. It's not just that I have a righteousness of Christ. I get the rest of my life to live this out. I get the rest of my life to relive this out. Verse 10, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is not Paul saying that when you come to Jesus Christ you're going to have perfect health and solid wealth. No, that's the false doctrine of justification peddled by TV preachers. The health and wealth that Jesus promises, and He promises a ton of it, is much greater than can be experienced on this side of eternity. And it is offered in a currency that is not accepted in a fallen world. So while we wait for the resurrection promised, and we do, how do we wait? We suffer and we die. 
We will hurt and will be hurt. We will sin and will be sinned against. But like Paul, we realize it's only temporary. And so we are left to obey His command. We rejoice. We rejoice in the Lord that there's a resurrection coming. There's an opportunity to live this life in its fullness. I think that gives us the point of the passage altogether. Live glad in the Lord Jesus, but not resting in your own righteousness, but in the perfect righteousness of Jesus and in His promise of eternal new life. Friend, if you're here and you've never considered the question, how is it that I'm right with God? I mean, really, how is it that I am right with God? I submit that you're in no better spot than Paul or anybody else in this room. I also submit the incredible, wonderful news. Jesus Christ stands ready and willing to deposit His assets into your account. Every other religion, every other religion is centered around the idea that we take and form and become a righteousness that at some point we hand it up to God and He decides whether it's enough to save us or not. Christianity could not be more opposite. It says that will never work. But let me tell you what will. My son has already been credited with massive amounts of righteousness. And I will hand that down. And I will give that over to you. And you can work that out. That will be credited as yours. And then you will be saved. And that's why Christianity is the only religion that has the Gospel. It's the only religion that actually has good news.